Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. I am Greg Mackling. He is not Brett McGarry. He is Tristan Field Jones. Hello there. For a second day of five consecutive. Well, Brett enjoys some vacation time slash cursing at Mother Nature because it wasn't a great golf day. Oh, well, he'll get over it. I'm sure he will. I'm sure he's got coping mechanisms that uh, you and I both would be uh, more than happy to partake in right now. (laughs) Uh, Tristan, uh, you were mentioning the fact that uh, the mosquito trap count is something that's kind of my personal crusade around here right now. I think it's become your thing, yeah. Maybe it may be. I just... I know I'm not different than anyone else. I just cannot stand them. And I know life without mosquitoes in the summertime exists. And I've experienced it. So I um, have been really enjoying the summer so far. But Mm -hmm. the other night, uh, our luck ran out, at least in my end of town. We'll talk about that in just a a minute or two. Ken uh, Nowalski was on with uh, Shadow Davis this morning. And we'll uh, talk about uh, the culprits in certain parts of the city as to, to why you might have been experiencing an explosion in the mosquito population. We are also going to talk about seatbelt use in Manitoba. I want to be very careful about how we talk about this, Tristan, because yeah. there's another side uh, to the conversation that we want to have. The story yesterday from Highway 75 two individuals lost their lives on the highways. It's, it's a tragedy. And. Please, we are not trying to make hay on the backs of these individuals, but I know from our discussions in the newsroom and other people around social media, topic of the conversation are two things, the age of one of the drivers and also seatbelt use, neither driver wearing a seatbelt. And my my thoughts on this, I, I kind of compare it to drunk driving. Um I don't understand why you wouldn't wear a seatbelt. I don't get it. It's like drunk driving. Do we, how, how many more times do we have? How many more ads do we have to have out there that tell you drunk driving is bad? Well, not to mention distracted driving. Exactly. Which is as responsible for so many of the accidents, the deaths on highways that we're seeing right now. We are not getting the message on these things. No, and, and, and I just, I don't... I, I don't understand it, and I would love to hear from people, and we're already getting a couple of texts here at 204-780-6868, but I'd love to hear from people why, if you don't wear seatbelts, or if you didn't wear a seatbelt for a number of years, why not? What was the purpose of that? And ex- explain to us, because I need to try and understand this. Because granted, based on some of the stats that you pulled up, Greg, it's well over 90% of people mm-hmm. in Manitoba, so the vast majority of us wear a seatbelt. But... I'd like to know for that small percentage of people why you don't wear a seatbelt, if that's the case now, or if you didn't, maybe back in the day, maybe a few years ago, maybe before it was legal. I would love to know why uh, that's the case, because like I said, I don't get it. Maybe I just grew up in a different time where it was... Just well, typical, you did. but you did. that must have been it. You did grow up in a different time. It's been legal since you were riding in a vehicle. When I was born, I came home on my mom's lap in the front seat of a car, mm-hmm. no baby seat, her holding on to me without a seatbelt on and one or both of my parents smoking in the car. All three of those things now 
illegal. Wow. Okay. So you got to think about <laughs> how times have changed, right? Say, that's In an image that I don't think we ever see nowadays. <laughs> no, well, of course not. <laughs> wow. But it was a reality for yeah. a long time. So things have changed, and you just happen to grow up in an era where it's always been a certain way. So if you have made and you make a conscious decision every single day to not wear a seatbelt, we really would like to hear from you. 780-68-68204, via text or by, by telephone. We love these yeah. stories in your own voice. Why have you made a decision to not wear a seatbelt? The greatest disaster in aviation history. That could have been the headline had some evasive action not been taken and the air traffic controllers in San Francisco not caught on to what was going, not to mention the pilots on the ground right? on the taxiway at SFO. We'll talk about that. We'll speak with an aviation expert. Todd Curtis will give us some insight as to what might have happened, what could have happened in San Francisco a couple of days ago and uh, how it may have happened and exactly how it was averted. And we'll also talk about the Trudeau government's promise for more transparency and how it's not exactly going the way most of us would like. That and much, much more as we make our way through the afternoon. Mosquitoes, real quickly, Ken Nowalski, as I mentioned, was with Shadow Davis this morning. He is uh, the city's entomologist and, uh, well... We wanted to know about the explosion of mosquito populations in certain parts of the city. And here was Ken's explanation. Species, which is uh, makes its periodic uh, presence, it only has one generation per year. It's a mosquito that's very difficult to control uh, because it's found in the bogs and the marshes and retention ponds throughout Winnipeg and surrounding areas. So the mosquito actually attaches itself to the stem and the roots down three, four feet in the reed grasses, and so it's very hard to larvicide for that. Mm-hmm. So this mosquito, um, fortunately, only lasts for about three weeks, and we're starting its third week, and after probably this coming weekend, we won't see it anymore. What did you call this one? It's uh, it's a perturbans. A per- perturbans mosquito. That's correct. Does it act the same way as every other mosquito? Does it suck your blood, or is it like... Uh, no, it sucks your blood, too. Uh, okay. Yeah. The thing about it, it's a very flimsy flyer, so you'll often notice it as it comes towards you. It's very slow, like yeah, drunk yeah. almost? It's almost drunk, Because yeah. you know what? I think I saw one of those. <laughs> yes, and so... You can really notice them as they come towards to bite you. Yeah. And so, um, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of flopping its yeah. way along. Like, does it really think we're not going to get it? Come well, on. Yeah, very different from our typical summer species, which is 80s vexens, which um, you, you really don't notice as much. They kind of like bite you at the ankles and, and other parts of your bodies and kind of sneak attack. This one makes its presence known and you can generally slap it. So... I'm going to try and pronounce the species of mosquito here. Coquilatidida perturbans. It's a reed mosquito that has one generation per year. It's a nasty biter. The larvae develop in the reeds themselves along the shorelines, making it difficult to control. Plus, moving water and natural water sites will have them no matter what. People who back onto retention ponds would notice them more than other areas of the city that don't have retention ponds. That from the former head of entomology at the city of Winnipeg, Taz Stewart, who now is uh, one of the head honchos over at Poolens. So we wanted to pass that along. It's been a point of conversation for at least... 30 hours now. (laughs) Uh, Greg, we are getting 
a tremendous amount of feedback regarding seatbelt usage, and I put it out there and said, uh, I don't I don't understand why people don't wear seatbelts. Getting some really interesting feedback from our listeners here. Uh, a lot of people, I think this is very much a, an issue when it comes to truckers and people who drive large vehicles. Cam here texting in saying, I have a friend who never wears a seatbelt because he feels constricted by it and it distracts him from focusing on the road. Uh, another person says, I'm a short haul truck driver and just never have. I'm small and I hate them. I'm a woman in 46. So kind of interesting there. Uh, and somebody else points out, you know, they don't have seatbelts on school buses either. So why is that the situation there? Which, again, I'm not an expert when it comes to that, so I don't know, but I would assume because they're safer and those school buses are rarely doing highway speeds. Uh, well, unless you're in rural Manitoba, I guess, but... Um, I don't like the fact they don't have seatbelts in school buses. Yeah, that's buses. kind of been a question I, mark I just, for me. I don't know why people bring that up about, you know, what they're not doing. We've asked you to confess your sin if, if you see it that way or don't see it that way. Do you decide, do you consciously make a decision not to wear a seatbelt? We would love to hear from you, 780-6868. Mike, do you wear your seatbelt? Never. Never wear my seatbelt. And why is that? Well, because it's a money grab. It's not about safety. It's about following the dollars. When they brought that rule in, they said they were going to save lives. Does it save lives? It all depends on the type of collision you're involved in. So... It's, it's, it's our government just trying to use that as a tool against us so they can get more money from us. You want to save lives? Stop selling liquor. Stop selling tobacco. Oh, but we can't do that because we need to make money from it. With the hypocrisy of government trying to tell me that my seatbelt will save my life. They're only interested in me staying alive long enough so they can take more money from me. They might be interested in not having to... Uh, take care of you when you're a paraplegic or a quad per, quadriplegic, Mike, or they may not be interested in taking care of your avoidable hospital bills. You're 47% more likely to survive a high-speed crash with a seatbelt on. They are not perfect. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. I could fall down a flight of stairs, too, and then those same conditions could still happen. So what, are you going to strap me to a buggy and roll me down my stairs? I'm not buying the argument. It's all about control. And the government wants control. They just, to have a free thinker scares the hell out of them. Okay. I don't wear a motorcycle helmet either. Okay, Mike. But I have a medical exclusion for that. Which and is I'm what? 50 years old. Hmm? What's I your medical double, exclusion? I get double vision from the helmet. Oh, wow. Signed by a, med, by a medical doctor in our province. Oh, interesting. How, how does that work? Can you explain that to me? Just, uh, I'm, I'm uh, very curious. Nate, when I put the bucket on my head, all of a sudden, I, I get closed in and I start to see double. Obviously not a safe no. situation. Well, you can live your life too. Do you drink? Do you smoke? You know, do you go out with fat women? Do all, everything could be considered dangerous. At what point am I allowed to be the person I want to be without the government telling me that they're going to be putting their thumb on me in every, every instance of our life? We've given up too much freedom in this world, and it's time that we start taking back. You know, if you're so worried about me, I also believe in Jesus, so I'm not really afraid to die. Okay, Mike. That's Have uh, a great one. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Well, we're getting a bunch of other texts here, Greg, uh, that are uh, really kind of interesting, and a few people sharing some personal incidents of um, circumstances where they think the seatbelt might have caused more harm than good. I'll just read a couple here real quick. Uh, When I was 17, I had a friend that ended up in a ditch upside down on a country road. The ditch had water in it, and he drowned because he couldn't get his seatbelt off. I'm 51 now, and to this date, I still do not wear a seatbelt, which I found kind of interesting. A comment for our last caller, Mike, here. 
is this guy for real? He must not know the damage that happens when you get tossed around a cab of a car. Like, really? He deserves the Darwin Award. We're going to go to John, 204-780-6868. Thanks for calling, John. Do you wear a seatbelt? Always. Always, always in my vehicle. I drive a transit bus, and I never wear one in the transit bus. It's there, though, right, John? It's available to you? It's there. It's just if anybody grabs you and starts beating you up, you have nowhere to go. Are you required as a transit driver? Like, do they enforce uh, putting the seatbelt on, or do they say that's optional if it's, you're a transit driver? Um, I think for new drivers, it, it's mandatory. For uh, senior drivers, I do believe it's uh, optional. I've never been told to put it on. So it's been uh, part in the terminology, John. It's been grandfathered for uh, potentially for for certain drivers, based on uh, your experience and whether you. Uh, came on to uh, transit as a driver when it was not a rule or a law? Uh, well, no, it was after the fact because I've only been driving for transit for 19 years huh. and uh, the law is older than that. All right, John, appreciate it very much. Thank you for uh, calling in today. We appreciate uh, your service as well as a transit operator. We know that there are other challenges associated with that profession as well. So thanks for uh, everything you do. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. We'll take a pause. We will update the weather forecast. Dustin, Bob, hang tight. We've got an incredible number of text messages mm-hmm. to get to on this topic. It's uh, Greg Mackling along with Tristan Field-Jones, who's in for Brett McGarry. Tristan, you have a smile on your face. You have that one of those... A smirk? I... I... I can't say what I want to say. You look like a, a cat that's eating a bird. And, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I, have I, that sort of uh, eating grin on your I, face. I'm, uh, I'm just uh, amused at your reaction of how you're kind trying to comprehend some of the feedback that we're getting and, and how it's, you know, it's, it's going through the, 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 the wheels in your brain and you're trying to figure it out. Well, just because uh, police officers aren't legally obligated to wear a seatbelt when they're responding in an emergency situation is pointed out. By one texter here, does that give you justification and and all of a sudden release you of all obligation to wear a seatbelt? Like, so much legislation, I admit, is about us not doing the right thing in the first place. It's mm-hmm. saving us from ourselves. Yeah. Because we're inherently... Stupid? Yeah, that's a good word for it. Sure. And so I don't understand why we look for justification to not do something that very well may save your life. Armando sends us a text message at 7806868. Since 2015, three highway accidents. Latest one was this past July 4th. Seat belt worn in all of them. The first two were deer strikes. The third was also deer, but no contact. The car went sideways, went into the ditch at 75 miles per hour. Seatbelt definitely helped. They don't help in every single situation. No. They are not a guarantee of anything. But I don't know why people want to roll the dice with their lives, with their brains. It just doesn't make, it doesn't compute for me. And I'll put my hand up as one of those people. We used to go to British Columbia on vacation BC, first province, to have seatbelt legislation. When we would come back across the BC-Alberta border, we would take off our seatbelts because, ah, oh, we're free again in Alberta. Dustin waiting patiently at 780-6868. Go ahead, Dustin. Thanks for your patience. Gentlemen, 
Fantastic talk topic. And actually, in the last couple in the last couple of days, I've been watching this even more closely. I drive truck once in a while. Uh, I work in a, a building where uh, plenty of truck drivers come in and out of here all day long. Uh, you don't know this, but two weeks ago, there was one of the large construction companies here uh, had an accident, and one of their, their dump trucks rolled and rolled on top of their driver who was ejected, not wearing a seatbelt. This was just two weeks ago, and uh, killed him. Uh, yesterday was the second uh, incident in the last couple of weeks here. And after the first one, I, as I say, I've never worn a seatbelt uh, while driving truck, which is really crazy because I'll get out of my car and straight into my truck, and I don't put the seatbelt on. But I'll get out of the truck later and get in my car, and I'll put the seatbelt back on. Uh, and I think, I'm, and I've been trying to ponder out why I do that, and I think it's the reason that I sit higher off the ground, I'm much larger, and it's a lap belt. Most big rig trucks have lap belts, and they're just uh, nobody can tell if I'm wearing one or not. So I just mm. don't. And, and it's 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 kind of funny because I've been thinking about this after the first incident a couple of weeks ago. Why don't I ever wear one when I'm driving? And uh, yesterday was a perfect example. I heard was listening to you guys on the radio talk about the accident, and I had my belt off the whole time. So I don't know. It's, it, this is I, I think it depends on the vehicle you're using. It's an interesting observation. And there's some really good, Thanks for the honesty there. Yeah, there's some really good insight in there because, again, neither of us are truck drivers and we don't know what it's like working in that industry. And the fact that it's only a lap belt, I mean, do we need to look, uh, and this may upset some people, but do we need to look at getting better legislation to make sure those seat belts in big trucks are adequate? I, I think the problem becomes how do you enforce it too? Well, I'm sitting so high off the ground for you to actually see that I'm not wearing a belt even becomes even more difficult. Uh, and then because I'm in and out of that truck uh, several times a day, uh, it almost becomes a hindrance. And it's kind of funny because I've been thinking about this, and it be, almost becomes a hindrance every time I have to put the belt on, and because it, it's air ride, so you have to lift the air ride, the air mm -hmm. ride, the belt, and everything to get in and out. And it becomes almost uh, a, a negative point of the position or the job I'm doing. So I don't know. It's kind of funny. I've been thinking about this hard lately. Dustin, we appreciate uh, you sharing this with us uh, today. Much appreciated. Cheers. Uh, Bob, hang tight, okay? We are up against the news here, but I want to get your comments. I'm going to record them off air to play back later on because we have a guest scheduled for 1.30 on this situation at San Francisco International Airport involving an Air Canada plane. Uh, very close call, so we have to get to that topic. But, Bob, hang tough. I want to record your comments. Keep those text messages coming at 780-6868. Tristan has global news and weather next. Well, it didn't take long for the phone lines to light up on that, did it, Tristan Field-Jones? Not at all. Thanks for everyone who called. Uh, I did take Bob's call off the air. I recorded it for you. And let me tell you, based on his experience in life as a school trustee and a police officer, retired from both now, by the way, his experience and his view on our seatbelt topic uh, was extraordinary. We'll play that for you in just a little bit. We want to talk about an accident that was um, avoided at the last possible moment at San Francisco International Airport. This near miss might have triggered, and this is in quotations, the greatest aviation disaster in history. Here's some audio on that from CBS. It was just before midnight when other pilots sounded the alarm and possibly prevented a horrific accident. 
Air Canada Flight 759 with 140 people on board was coming in from Toronto. The Airbus A320 was cleared to land on runway 28 right at San Francisco International, but instead lined up for the taxiway that parallels the runway. There were four other airliners on that taxiway waiting to take off. Air traffic control audio captured what happened next. So I just want to confirm this, uh, Air Canada 759, confirmed, clear to land, runway 28 right, there is no one on 28 right but you. Okay, I can't Where's this guy going? He's on the taxiway. Yeah, I saw that guy. The FAA is now investigating the distance between that Air Canada flight and those jets on the ground on taxiway C. Air Canada says the airliner eventually landed safely, and the airline is also investigating what happened. Chris Van Cleve, CBS News, Washington. What jumped out for me in that audio, Tristan? Mm-hmm. How calm, cool, and collected the air traffic controller remained. Oh, yeah. In that circumstance, you, you can't even just show a little bit of panic because you start doing that and things get out of control quickly, especially when you're monitoring potentially hundreds of planes. I can only imagine. Well, they say it's one of the most stressful jobs mm-hmm. on the planet. Todd yep. Curtis, AirSafe Foundation, formerly worked for Boeing and the American Air Force, joins us now. And Todd... Uh, just by all accounts, this was uh, a tragedy that was very nearly uh, unparalleled, in fact, in terms of scope. Well, that's correct. Uh, there have been occasions in the past, uh, one that comes to mind is an LAX some years ago, where an airliner actually landed on top of another airliner and killed several dozen people. But this was potentially something that could have involved up to five aircraft. And that certainly would have uh, put it in the range of being of the most uh, tragic accident in the history of aviation. Todd, I have to ask, as someone who has next to no knowledge when it comes to how uh, air traffic controlling works or how uh, the process at at an airport works, when a plane is about to land, what what's the procedure in there to make sure that there are no crashes, especially when you have a busy airport like San Francisco International? Well, that's one of the issues that I believe the FAA will definitely uh, look into, because depending on the circumstances, even though this was a nighttime event. I believe the weather was relatively clear, and they may have been operating under largely visual flight rules. That is, instead of using the automated landing systems like the instrument landing system, uh, that they were relying on essentially their uh, their eyeballs to, to figure out where they were and to align properly with the runway. And this may have been a case where they may have been confused by the lights on the ground and lined up with the taxiway, which is parallel to the runway, rather than the runway itself. The taxiway parallel to the runway. I find that interesting that that, that would be the case. Is that, is that a usual circumstance uh, or are they typically perpendicular, Todd? Well, it depends on the airport. Uh, typically, if you have a fairly straightforward airport, let's say a single runway airport, you'll have a taxiway paralleling the runway and also other taxiways going to and from the terminal. San Francisco has several major runways and several taxiways, some of which parallel the major runways. And I believe in this event, the four aircraft that were waiting were on a taxiway immediately parallel to the main runway. 
Wow. I mean, I've been in and out of San Francisco a couple of different times. It's obviously an extremely busy airport. The geography is challenging, of course. It kind of juts out into San Francisco Bay, depending on, obviously, uh, this flight was from Toronto. You come in over the mountains. Uh, they're not incredibly high mountains. It's no, no Hong Kong or anything like that. But it, it, it's got its challenges, and, of course, weather can often be a factor in San Francisco. Yes, indeed. In fact, the weather could be a factor in a good way, in a sense of good weather could encourage pilots to operate in a way that's unsafe. Mm. I say this because almost four years to the day before this near miss, there was a crash in San Francisco involving an Asiana 777 aircraft, which was on a spectacularly clear daylight uh, visual landing sort of day, uh, the kind of picture postcard weather that uh, you would use to attract tourists to San Francisco. And the crew in that case, the NTSB did an investigation. The crew in that case was using automated landing systems in ways that were inappropriate for a landing when they were supposed to be using essentially a visual a set of flight rules rather than an instrument set of flight rules. Todd, I have to ask, and I don't know if we have this information, but how frequent roughly are incidents uh, do incidents like this take place? I mean, obviously, that the scope of this uh, near hit, frankly, uh, it was massive. But in terms of uh, uh, you know, almost having air, two aircraft almost crash at an airport, how often does that does that happen? I assume that gets rarer with better technology, but it it must happen once in a while. Eh? That's an excellent question, and one that I'm actually ill-equipped to answer because the databases that are widely available to the public that talk about incidents and accidents, if you have something that's a near miss, for example, an airplane almost lands on a taxiway but projects uh, the landing and lands normally later on, that may not show up in any database. Typically, when I do hear about this, it's through the media. Uh, you may remember a few months ago, I believe it was February this year, uh, Harrison Ford, the movie actor and actually quite accomplished pilot, uh, almost landed on the taxiway of an airport in Southern California. They got a lot of media play. There was even a video of his airplane nearly landing on the taxiway. The FAA didn't charge him or sanction him in any way. Uh, and just uh, in preparation for this story, I found out about a, an event in 2015 at the Seattle airport where an airplane actually did land on the taxiway. Fortunately, there were no other aircraft there. And this was apparently the fourth time that it happened at SeaTac Airport. Yet it was something that would not show up in any official database that's easily accessible. And, and Todd, can you confirm for me, because I have a, an article open right now that says that Harrison Ford did in fact land on the taxiway at John Wayne Airport. Was it a, a near miss or did he in fact land on the taxiway? I, I, I stand corrected. I, I remember looking at the video, and it only had a portion of the view. It showed him flying over, I believe it was a Southwest Airlines 737. He was about 30 or 40 feet uh, distant from the aircraft, right. but he didn't hit that aircraft. And as you said, I don't believe it was a, a rejected landing. So, yes, uh, this sort of thing happens on a regular basis, but it's not something that necessarily will show up in uh, something that can easily be compiled so you can say statistically – are things getting better or are things getting worse? One thing I will say without hesitation, what is getting better is the likelihood that you and I and the general public find out about these things much, much, much higher today. You not only have cameras at all major airports looking at routine landings and takeoffs, 
you have passengers and pilots and ground crew who may be witnesses with cameras in their pockets to take pictures of this. So uh, where it may have happened in the past, it may have been swept under the rug. It's much harder to hide it now. You know, I make the assimilation to Disneyland and you see these uh, traveling amusement park shows where they take up and put up rides for three, four days on a weekend and they go somewhere else. And, and you know, so there's a perception that those rides are, are less safe than, say, permanent rides at Disneyland. I don't know the exact statistics, but I feel more comfortable on the rides at Disneyland, but that doesn't mean accidents don't happen there. They're just very good at making sure there isn't panic happening when they take place and they've got infrastructure so that they can keep those uh, from us uh, much better than they would in a farmer's field or at the state or county fair. And in a sense, there's a parallel between aviation and the amusement industry in that when something happens to an airliner, that's a very newsworthy item, very, very hard to, 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 to hide that. But if something happens, a private airport, a private airplane away from the eyes of the public, uh, it may happen and no one will know about it. Similarly, something happens at Disneyland, Disney World, Six Flags, or any major amusement park. It's national and sometimes international news, and there's a lot of pressure on that industry to get things right and to keep bad things from happening. Not so much pressure for the smaller operators who are operating almost in the shadows, so to speak. Todd, I have to ask just your perspective on this as someone who has tremendous expertise in this area. I mean, if I may draw a comparison to traffic violations, for instance, you know, if you get a speeding ticket or a parking ticket, uh, you know, that may not involve another vehicle, that may not involve anyone else. But the fact is those are tracked and those are monitored in spite of the fact that those are not crashes and those don't involve anybody else. Now, when it comes to these near misses with these airplanes, I would think, just from a layman's perspective, it would be worth tracking this data and figuring out the trends and figuring out why this happens. And I'm just kind of curious to know, why aren't we tracking this? Because this sounds pretty important to me. Well, I think that's another good parallel to the um, uh, road traffic industry. That is, if you have a speeding ticket or running a stop sign, it may not lead to an accident. And it may not end up in a national or international database, but certainly insurance companies who follow this would look at this and say, well, if this operator keeps running red lights, I'm going to raise their insurance. For all we know, there's something similar going on within the airlines or within the airline industry. Certainly within a major airline, if they have a good handle on the statistics of how they operate the aircraft, they'll be able to point out which flights, which airports, which pilots even tend to be associated with uh, behavior that is outside of uh, uh, acceptable behavior and take a, a action accordingly. But at the same time, they may not have any responsibility to release that information to the public. In other words, it may be taken care of, but not taken care of in a way that you and I will see. And as an aside, I'd like to point something out. I, at the end of June, I realized something about what happened in the first six months of 2017. Worldwide, there was not a single event anywhere in the world where a passenger on a jet airliner died for any reason, not for an accident, not from sabotage, not from military action. I look back in the records. That had not happened previously until you get to the year 1959. So in spite of the high-profile things that are happening on a regular basis, at the highest level of aviation, I believe that collectively, over time, a lot of good things have been done and have prevented many of the high-level uh, high fatality and even low fatality type events, which when I was younger, 
seem to be an almost monthly occurrence. Yeah, I agree, Todd. It, it's crazy to look back and, and realize how frequently a plane crash would lead the news. It was something that, as a kid, uh, used to stress me out. It was uh, I used to have dreams about air crashes, and that's fascinating to learn that uh, uh, we were in that situation. So that was that last year or so far this year, Todd? So far this year, so far this year, the first six months, uh, zero passenger fatalities for any sort of jet airliner. And uh, I'll go even further. On my website, airsafe.com, I actually follow a wider range of aircraft, not only jet airliners, but any turboprop airliner that's commonly used in airline service in North America and Western Europe, which means I'm drawing an even wider uh, range of aircraft. And in the past 22 years, in each of the previous 21 years, there was at least one event where there's a passenger uh, death on one of those types of aircraft. Nothing happened this year either. That's fascinating so stuff. So this is unusual on two levels. For sure. And so I, I think uh, that you're right. <laughs> Obviously, you're the expert, but I have to imagine that it's all this technology that makes these near misses more accessible to the general public. People are talking about them. They have the network to do so and the technology to share their experiences. Before we go here, Todd, I do want to add, you know, uh, we had a text message here. Somebody suggesting that the uh, crash on the Canary Islands, and I remember this too, two Boeing 747 passenger jets colliding on the runway uh, at what was called at the time the Los Rodeos uh, Air, airport on the uh, Canary Islands. 583 people were killed in that aviation accident. Would we have approached a number like this had these four or five planes uh, collided, four on the ground, one landing at San Francisco? It, the potential was certainly there. I don't know the sizes of the aircraft that were there in San Francisco. Certainly the ones in the Canary Islands, there are two, I believe, either fully loaded or nearly fully loaded 747s. And uh, all were killed on one aircraft. I think it was a KLM. And most of the people were killed on the Pan Am aircraft. Uh, certainly, depending on what was happening in San Francisco, this would have been in that, in that ballpark. But that's something that uh, I'm happy is only in the realm of speculation. Todd, thank you for making some time for us today. We greatly appreciate your insight. Well, thank you once again for having me. Todd Curtis with us, AirSafe Foundation, and he's an aviation expert, formerly worked for Boeing and the American Air Force. Thanks for uh, hooking us up with uh, Todd Absolutely. Curtis. Had him on several times. He's outstanding when it comes to this stuff. I guess the overall message here is simply put, yes, these near hits or near misses, whatever you want to call them, they are scary, uh, and they could be disastrous, but the fact is air travel is still incredibly safe. I'm sorry that I did not see this text message while we had Todd on the air. Maybe we can send him an email on this, Tristan. Mm. Why not use cool blue lights on the taxiway and white lights on the runway? I don't. I wouldn't know the answer to that. I don't either, but mm. that's why I suggested maybe send it to Todd. He might have an idea. We'll take a pause. We'll update your weather forecast such as it is, and we will return more conversation, I think some more text messages on seatbelts when we come back. I'm Greg Mackling, he's Tristan Field-Jones, in for Brett McGarry. Tuesday afternoon, kind of a gloomy day, but maybe a little bit of a break for some of you that don't have air conditioning. Might be good sleeping weather tonight. I opened up all the windows upstairs last night. It was nice to get some fresh air. 
The air conditioning never makes its way up the stairs in a two-story. I don't know why. I try and recalibrate my vents and everything, shut the vents off in the basement to try and force more cold air. Mm -hmm. The main level is just nice and perfect. It's like a freezer in the basement, and then it's like uh, the jungle up on the second floor. No, in my condo, because of the way it's the... um uh, the air conditioner uh, is really good for kind of the living room in the main large area in the kitchen, but unfortunately, because of the way it's set up, uh, you have to we'd have to have like an industrial sized fan to get all that hot air all the way down to the hallway to get into the bedroom. And therefore, in spite of the fact that it's nice and cool and comfortable in most of the condo, my small bedroom it is not cool and comfortable. And of course, I try to open the window for some fresh air, but uh, you know, like yesterday, for instance, when it was super muggy. That now my room was warm. Mm-hmm. After that, my room was warm and muggy. Oh, great! So standing. <laughs> so that didn't solve anything. You need some cross ventilation, my friend. Yes, sir. Uh, Transparency—a catchphrase and campaign promise at every level of government in every campaign over the last several years. I would contest, Tristan, mm. and um, when these individuals go from candidate to representative. The tune seems to change a little bit, does it not? That, like death and taxes, right? It seems to be so consistent where greater transparency, greater this, and yet it never, maybe I shouldn't say never, but it seldomly materializes. And and this, you know, Greg, I saw this article. This was from Vice News here. Fascinating article. And it just reeks, reeks of politics as usual. It really does. And you know what? Without further ado, this is Justin Ling. He's a features editor for Vice News. And I figured uh, we'd reach out to him to talk about how the Trudeau government has redacted the details of its own transparency plan. Justin, that's a hell of a headline. Yeah, I I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Just real quick, give us a synopsis here. What's going on? So a couple, I guess about a year ago now, the president of the Treasury Board, uh, Scott Bryson, who's the guy responsible for managing kind of transparency, proactive disclosure, and and most importantly, the Access to Information Act, um, which if you don't know what that is, is basically a way in which the media and the public can request documents from the federal government. Um, He announced that he was going to finally be following through on a campaign promise to overhaul the whole system and to basically make it better. It hasn't been updated in 20-odd years, and it's falling apart by almost every standard. Um, Problem is, is that he didn't do it. I mean, it was delayed, and then it was delayed, and then it was delayed. And ultimately, when they finally unveiled their big sweeping changes, they were mostly tinkering. It was none of the things they promised, really, during the campaign. Uh, the most integral part of, the, of, of their campaign commitment was uh, the idea that uh, ministers' offices and the prime minister's office should be subject to the Access to Information Act, which they never have been before. Um, they didn't do it. They, they, they completely just did not do it. Um, instead, they did some, some very misleading sort of some trickery that made it look kind of like they were doing it. And I can get into that later. But uh, the, you know, the long and short of it is that they, they didn't follow through on the promises they made to improve this system. So I used the Exit Information Act to try to get documents on, kind of explaining how they got to the decision they got to. Uh, and they were heavily redacted. There was paid, you know, huge chunks of it just that were withheld. Um, and there was one section that was kind of going through uh, the changes they have made to the Access to Information System. And they were all redacted. There were just big white 
chunks where this, you know, the text should have been. Um, and I thought it was just for me, it was so emblematic of what I've seen done to the system over the last, um, you know, five years or so that I've been using it. Um, and the system has gone from, you know, bad, which it has been for some time, to really bad under the Harper government to just absolutely almost unusable and broken to almost the worst possible degree. Uh, And a lot of that has accelerated under the Trudeau government. But Justin, they have this beautiful report uh, on one side. You see the Peace Tower and the and, and, the, and the eternal flame burning. And then it, it has in a kind of a script style font. It says real. And then they underline it. And it's handwritten too. And it has the Canadian Maple Leaf beside real change in capital letters, open and transparent government. I don't believe for one second that they didn't follow through on this promise. I know it's shocking. And, you know, what's even personally sort of annoying for me is that uh, the Liberal Party has known that I've been a, a, a kind of a, a, a annoying on this for a long time. They know that this is a thing that I'm personally obsessed by. So when Justin Trudeau unveiled his campaign commitment uh, on open government, they did their, you know, they unveiled it in a sit-down interview with me. I was the first interview they did after releasing this platform, uh, this part of the platform. And Trudeau sat there and, and told me point blank, I asked him, isn't it true that when governments, you know, when, when parties get into government, they always drop these lofty ideas of access and transparency? And why should we believe that you're actually going to make your own office subject to the Access to Information Act if you win? And he looks me dead in the eye and he says, oh, you know, like, we're doing it because it's the right thing. And if, if there's anything in, you know, in my emails that I didn't want, you know, the public to read, then I shouldn't be writing them. And it's so ironic that, you know, three years on, they've completely done a 180-degree turn on that. Um, and, and, and what's really, I think, for me, just the worst affront to all of this is that what they did when they changed the act, or when they're, they're now in the process of it, but when they unveiled the changes to the act just last month, um, they wrote in a, a new section of the Access to Information Act saying that they're going to require proactive disclosure from the prime minister's office. And, you know, it's it basically they're going to now force, like, quote unquote, force the prime minister's office to release certain talking points that were previously not technically released. And now they're claiming that that is what they promised all along. These documents show that, no, that's not the case. The, the case is that they really did intend on making it possible for journalists to request documents, memos, briefing notes, background information, um, signatures, financial disclosure, you name it, from the prime minister's office. And then at some point they decided they didn't like that anymore and they dropped it. Uh, And they did some very, very kind of clever real politics to make it look like they never reneged on their pledge, but they did. And these documents prove that. And I think it's very frustrating when the government won't turn around and admit that. Okay, uh, editorial comment on my part, then a question. And the first, the editorial comment would be: This sounds frightening, fright, scarily similar. There we go. <laughs> scarily similar to the uh, pledged election reform action that turned into abs- absolutely zero action. And you mentioned that it's was bad under Harper, worse under Trudeau. Did you actually say that? And can you can you quantify that a little bit for us, Justin? Yeah, I, I, I will say, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily that 
the Trudeau government is at fault for making it worse. But the longer the system goes without a significant uh, infusement of money, the longer it goes without significant uh, changes to authority or changes to uh, the exemptions, the worse it gets. So the longer you know these these delays go on, the worse it's going to get. Requests are going up, funding has stayed flat, um, and departments are now exploiting um, basically a lack of action to to withhold more documents. So it has gotten worse, not necessarily because of the Trudeau government, but because the Trudeau government has failed to act. Um, now, you know, but on the, on the flip side, you know, look at what the Harper government did when they came in power. Um, in 2006, one of their first actions was to expand the access to information system to a whole raft of new agencies and departments that had never covered before. Um, you know, there was, it wasn't a huge change, but it was still, uh, you know, they made that commitment in, in their platform and then they did it. The commitments made by the Trudeau government in their platform were not followed through on, and that's I think very very similar to the um, the, the pledge for electoral reform. Um, they basically got in here, decided, oh, that would be hard, and we might not like it, so we're just not going to do it. Um, and even if you look in these documents that I've received, um, there's there's summaries from public consultations they did, where the public, everyone they talked to, organizations, the public, everyone who submitted, all agreed that the platform commitments were good, but they needed to do more. The Trudeau government ignored all of those public submissions and did the opposite and did less. Um, so it's very frustrating to hear a government kind of come out and brag about how much they're doing when, in fact, they're, they're, they're doing less than even they promised during the campaign and less than they're being asked for by those who are most impacted by the system. Um, you know, I've used, like I said, I've used the system for about five years now, and I can tell you the quality and the amount of disclosure we're getting now is absolutely rock bottom. Um, and unless the government makes a serious, serious commitment to fixing this, it's only going to get worse. And this is not my opinion. This is the opinion by the BC Freedom of Information uh, Association, the Information Commissioner of Canada, um, the Journalists for Free Expression. Uh, there's a number of organizations who have all come to the same conclusion that the system is wildly broken and that these changes are not going to make a huge impact. Justin, I know that when... Um uh, when Stephen Harper, when they ran the campaign in 2015, a part of the reason, a big part of the reason why the conservatives were kicked out under Harper is because they were seen as exactly what we're describing, secretive, uh, hostile towards the media. There are many reasons you could go by, but that was one of the big reasons. Now, what I found, what I find kind of disturbing about this is that not like you said, not that the Trudeau government is actively sabotaging this. But the fact is, that was after a decade, almost a decade of Harper being in power. So the rot starts to set in the government. Right. You know, that that's not doesn't excuse it, but it's a little more understandable. The fact that we're not even into a full first term, we're only a couple years into the mandate of the Trudeau government, and this is becoming worse and worse day by day. I mean, to me, that's very concerning. As someone who works in the news business, that's very concerning, uh, the fact that we're already at this point. And there's no sign of it getting better. I mean, as a journalist, Justin, how does this make you feel? I, you know, not great. I mean, and, and, and you know, for those who are not familiar with this system, you know, I can I can point to probably hundreds of stories uh, that have been published only because we got documents through the access to information system. Uh, myself personally, you know, I, you know, I've, I've discovered kind of uh, backroom lobbying campaigns at the United Nations. Uh, you know, I've, I've discovered, uh, you know, 
basically government surveillance tactics that that have not yet that had not yet been made public. Uh, other journalists who I know have discovered, um, you know, wasted money, have discovered, you know, canceled projects. You know, the access to information system is invaluable. Like it, it is so integral um, to the way in which uh, national reporters kind of cover the federal government. And I cannot stress that enough how um, how much, you know, maybe even a quarter of your daily newspaper comes from this system. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about just journalists whining here. You know, this really is about the substance and the quality and the vigor of, of you know, how we report on the federal government. Um, and, you know, the government is still saying the right things. They're still saying they believe in openness and transparency, and they're still saying they want to modernize and update the act. Uh, but what they're doing just doesn't match what what, what they're saying. Um, now, you know, there's a possibility that they do actually mean this, and they actually they're they're announcing soon that they're going to do a full review of the act. And after the full review, we expect more changes to come down the line. But the problem is they're not even starting that review until 2018. By the time they actually finish the review, draft legislation, you know, start actually working to you know do those changes, we'll be in the next election. It could be a new so government by then. <laughs> exactly. They may not even be in yeah. power at that point. So at a certain point, and you know, this is not a neophyte minister. This is Scott Bryson. This guy has been in the House of Commons for more than 10 years. He's served as a minister before. This guy's not a neophyte. He knows what he's doing. He shouldn't need four years to do something that everyone already agrees on. There's already consensus about what needs to be done in the short term. I mean, there's medium, long-term stuff that could be done as well. But in the short term, I could draw you up a list in a heartbeat telling you exactly what kind of everyone agrees need to be done. Uh, but somehow they've not managed to get there. They, they, you know, they've, they've now released a directive. They've uh, jigged with some policies. They've introduced legislation. And it's been a little more than tinkering. So, you know, this is deeply frustrating. You know, I, I don't want to impugn motive behind why, you know, there's so little action being done, but um, the, 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 the effect is, is very obvious that, you know, this system might not be functioning, um, you know, by the time they actually get around to the changes in 2019, 2020, or later. Um, I can tell you here at Vice News, we file, we filed probably upwards of 300, 400 requests in the past year and a half, two years. Um, and we're looking at a position now where, you know, a quarter of them, maybe 40% of them have been uh, either just forgotten about and we cannot get an answer on. They've been delayed, uh, you know, four or five months, if not a year. We have one request, maybe two requests that have been out for more than two years. Um, and the act mandates they have to be done roughly in 30 days. You know, the system is completely falling apart uh, and the government doesn't seem to realize that. Justin, uh, we've run out of time, but I'd love to talk to you about if this is the case in Canada, I cannot imagine what's happening in other countries around the world in terms of journalists trying to be able to tell stories, tell the truth about what's going on within government, because we think we've got it pretty good here. And I, I would suspect that comparatively speaking, we perhaps do. That's maybe a sad commentary on openness around the world. But uh, would you be willing to have that conversation with us down the road? Absolutely. But I'll tell you really quickly, Canada's system was the model for the world when it was created you know, 30 years ago uh, and is now well behind the pack. Every country have, have every other country has mostly looked at our system, adopted it and then made it better. We are well behind all of them right now. Features editor with Vice News, Justin Ling, joining us. Justin, thank you so much for this. We appreciate the access. Absolutely. We'll uh, take a pause and update your weather forecast in just a moment. Tristan Field-Jones in for a vacationing Brett McGarry. And Tristan? Sports. Sports. You uh, love sports. I'm the, uh, my day job is uh, partly uh, news anchor, partly afternoon sportscaster. 
You got a smile on your face, Greg. What's going on? Well, we you have miscasting and movies all the time. And right. Like, can we admit that that that's a little bit of a miscast? Like, sports is not your primary love and no, life. no, no. It definitely isn't. But uh, you know what? I, I certainly I don't hate sports. I know you don't. Uh, it's just too bad at 25 after the hour we didn't talk about Led Zeppelin or something like that. Now, now we're talking. <laughs> oh man, Greg, that would require a whole show on its own. But uh, yeah. I know you have uh, mentioned the fact that um, in the news that the power is out in Gimli, but Mm -hmm. if you're just tuning in, just wanted to reiterate that. So uh, if you're without power in the Gimli area, you are not alone. Your neighbors are there with you. We have a message into Manitoba Hydro to find out how long this outage will be and how long it's anticipated to uh, take to get things back and up running as normal. Now, we're waiting to hear from uh, Winnipeg Blue Bomber defensive lineman uh, Jamal Westerman. And the Blue Bombers, of course, take on the Toronto Argonauts Thursday at IGF. You were at the game on Friday night. Yes. Between yes, the indeed. Blue Bombers and, and the Stampeders. I believe you were too. You were. Is this your debut on the sidelines? It was break? my uh, debut hosting the uh, halftime show. Uh, for Bob Irving, uh, so uh, Bob and Doug can get a little bit of a break. Ed Tate and myself uh, at halftime, so that was a thrill of a lifetime. Uh, unfortunately, they want me to do it again. <laughs> so, so you did your forward. best to make sure <laughs> yes. that uh, things would go well. And that's right. So I'm looking forward to uh, to jumping into the booth on uh, Thursday night one more time, and uh, maybe that'll be uh, maybe they'll invite me back again for the next uh, home game. But I digress. In spite or because? Uh, because. Attaboy. What what did you think of the fan experience at the game on Friday night? Uh, well, here's the thing. I lo- again, I I do casually follow. I'd say I'm a fan of of NHL stuff and the Jets and the CFL for sure. Um, and I think Investors Group Field is fantastic. I think it's a great stadium. Uh, I know I've done. I've been the home op for several games. In fact, in 2013, our inaugural season uh, of the Bombers, uh, I was the op, uh, the operator behind the board here at CGLB for the entire season. So I've actually got uh, a fair amount of experience doing uh, uh, operating Bomber games. And uh, well, last year as an example, I was there for band for uh, the Banjo Bowl, which was a fantastic experience, packed. Uh, lots of great fan spirit. And again, as someone who's not a, a massive football fan, I just loved the atmosphere. And on Friday for the home opener, I, um, again, I think it's a fantastic stadium. The fan, the fan, uh, atmosphere was great. You know, it's, you may not be a huge football fan, but ultimately you, you can't help but get swept up by, uh, the experience and the atmosphere there. Um, it's too bad that the Bombers for the second half put on a real stinker because the first half I thought some people like I know Jeff Courier here wasn't happy with the whole game. Uh, but I thought the first half was just as a casual spectator. I thought the first half was was really competitive, and really interesting. I just wish the second half had been a better show, if you will. Well, I suspect the gentleman waiting to join us right now on the telephone line feels uh, mostly the same way you do. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers had a 10-9 lead at halftime over the Calgary Stampeders, and things were mostly going their way, in particular on defense. When you hold Bo Levi Mitchell to about seven completions and under 100 yards in the first half, Jamal Westerman joining us now. You had to imagine at halftime on Friday, Jamal, that things were on the right track, at least in terms of defense, fair to say? Uh, I think we, you know, we know we played a good first half, but I mean, when you're playing a team like the Calgary Stampeders, you know, who have the uh, MOP, that you know they're going to make adjustments, they're going to come out in, in the second half and they're going to change certain things up, so... 
So, you know, we expected them to do something. We just did, didn't do a good enough job in that second half matching what they adjusted to. Now, I don't want to alter uh, Coach O'Shea's philosophy of leaving the past in the past, so we'll leave Friday's game where it lies. Let's look ahead to Thursday. Ricky Ray, the accomplished quarterback with the Toronto Argonauts, uh, he's one of the very best all-time in the Canadian Football League. He seems to have a rebirth here. Are you seeing that in the film? I, I definitely do. I mean, I think uh, it looks like he's playing. I mean, he's always had confidence. I mean, it's Ricky Ray, right? Enough to be said about that. But it uh, seems like he has a little bit more spry in him, and he's throwing the deep ball a lot better. And his receivers are making plays for him. And, I, you know, as a quarterback, you know, I would guess that your number one job is to get the ball out your hands and put it in your playmaker's hands, and they've been doing that. Jamal, I have to ask, as uh, again, as someone, like I said, I'm a casual football fan, how do you guys prepare? I mean, I know, I know the name Ricky Ray. I know accomplished quarterback. How do you guys psychologically prepare yourselves to go up against a worthy opponent? Uh, I think, you know, the number one thing from a uh, player's perspective is, you know, you're not playing Ricky Ray. You're playing the Toronto Argonauts offense. So you look at, you know, first it boils down to your one-on-one battle. So, you know, with me, it's like, okay, I'm going against this, this offensive lineman. You know, is it, is it a run or is it a pass? If it's a run, what am I run, you know, technique I'm supposed to play? And if it's a pass, you try to get pressure on Ricky because, you know, it's, it's tough to cover that entire field all day, you know, for, the, for our DB. So if you can try to get pressure on Ricky and make him maybe one-dimensional, make, make him try to get the ball out of his hands quickly, we would hope it would help our secondary. Jamal, I, I must ask you this question as well. When you, when you look at uh, Ricky Ray and uh, what he's accomplished, and, and you mentioned you know, you're not getting ready for Ricky Ray, you're getting ready for the Toronto Argonauts. When you look at what happened on Friday night, and I promised we wouldn't go back, but I just want to use it as an example. Uh, football is a team game, but it also there, is there a divide between the defense and the offense? And when the defense does the job that they did, holding Bo Levi Mitchell, as you mentioned, the defending MOP, most outstanding player in the league, to the, the, the minuscule amount of yards, and, and they got really no running game established in that first half. Is there, when the Offense turns over the ball. Is there an opportunity for there to create a little bit of a divide, a little animosity between the offense and the defense of the same team? Uh, not at all. I think uh, we understand this is a team sport, and I think on defense, you know, no matter what happens, we're on the field. It's like, you know, a guy more TV time for us, more time for us to go out there and play the type of defense we want to play, to put our names on the map, to put our defense on the map. And we understand that, you know, no matter what happens with offense, in the fourth quarter, we let them score 10 points. And that's one thing that Coach Hall always preaches is that we have to play our best football at the end of the game. And we didn't. I mean, the game would end at a halftime. You're like, okay, yeah, we did our job. We won. But, you know, there is four quarters, and we didn't play our best football in that second half of the game, especially in the fourth quarter. TJ Heath, I have to ask you, he's your teammate, uh, tied for the league lead with interceptions with another teammate, Maurice Leggett, last year. Some of those occurring as a member of the Argonauts. Uh, how good is TJ Heath, Jamal? I think he's one of the top guys in just reading the ball when it's in the air. I mean, he has a, a tremendous ability that when that ball is in the air, he can turn, he can, he can turn track and locate the ball. But on the same token, that in a session that he had on the two-point conversion, I batted the ball. The TJ said he's going to buy me a nice Tim Hortons coffee because I tipped the ball and he got the interception. So, you know, I take some of the praise, too. I think I have some great ball skills myself when the ball is in the air. I do a good job of trying to knock it down and tip it 
for our DB to get the interception. So we're not going to leave me out of the game also. Okay, Jamal, we better give you some props on this. So, you know, I'm an old, slow, white guy. And so when I look at Ricky Ray, I see a lot of myself. He can throw the ball a little bit better than I could once upon a time. But I look at that, and you have to – Come on, you, it's just you and us talking here. You must salivate <laughs> at the idea of having this old, slow white guy in the pocket for the opposition. You know what? Sometimes you do. You do think about, you know what, he's a guy, and it is what it is. He's not going to run around. He's not going to, you know, shake a guy. But the thing with quarterbacks, especially when they get up there in age, is that they're so smart that they feel the rush. So they don't have to run around. They can take two steps up, two steps to the left. One step, one step to the right, and they can make all the throws. I mean, he's been tra- throwing the corner out this year, you know, at a, at tremendously. I mean, I think the best he's ever thrown it. So it's not all about maybe running around. Maybe, you know, you're rushing the pass, he takes one step up or one step to the side, where somebody who is faster and maybe more mobile, maybe they'll think, okay, I'm going to outrun this DN to the corner instead of Ricky, where I'm going to take a step to the right, I'm going to plant my feet, and I'm going to throw this corner out. So it is a it is a gift, but it's also a curse, you know, to have that speed because you may run yourself out of a play where you can actually throw a touchdown or, or complete a ball for a first down. Jamal, I have to ask, as someone who was in the stands, uh, Investors Group Field is such an impressive and a loud stadium. What is it like on the field? And if you could put yourself in the shoes of a visiting team, how intimidating must that be being on the field in a stadium that is simply that loud I, I think it's very intimidating i mean um you know when we were on defense you know they had to go to a silent count where they you know they're trying to snap the ball and you know without saying hut you know with a tap you know by the guard to the center and then we can continue that at home and that's up to us to the win games to have the fans to kind of have that nasty mindset where we're going to be loud and every time that they jump off sides every time that they have a false start or they can't communicate a you know, they can't communicate a play between a quarterback and receiver or quarterback and offensive line. That's the win for the fans. So, I mean, you just have to continue being loud, continue being nasty, continue to just make them feel you to make it overbearing because as a defensive player, I mean, you can tell where it's like, listen, we have to go, they have to go to a snap, uh, a silent count so we can be a little quicker off the ball. And especially the Argonauts that use a lot of a uh, hard count and, uh, you know, double calls, you know, said, hut, hut. So if we're allowed, if, if our fans are allowed, they're not going to be able to do that as much. And sometimes that cadence, that hard count, will will draw the uh, opposition. Uh, one thing you've been much better at as a team this year, Jamal, is the number of pen- penalties uh, overall is down a little bit. Talk us through the situation before we let you go. Talk us through a situation when you're in pursuit of a quarterback and he lets go of the ball, you are mid-flight, and you know that you've got to be awful careful about how you touch, hit, even breathe on the quarterback when you're in midair, uh, the, the challenge of avoiding uh, unfortunate roughing the passer penalties? Uh, I think, it's, you know, when you're going for quarterback, you're rushing the quarterback. You're trying to get him down. You're trying to hit him. You're trying to harass him. You're trying to make it uncomfortable, uncomfortable for him in a pocket. But, I mean, when you throw with the ball, you try to lay up. Sometimes, you know, you, like you said, you may be attacking while he's throwing it. And the one thing about, you know, quarterbacks, especially up here, you know, especially – you know, you think of some of the great quarterbacks up here, that they always have a good pump fake. So sometimes I've seen plays where, you know, the guy may be coming towards the quarterback and he lay, he kind of lays off, the quarterback pumps it, everybody turns to run to the screen or run to where the pass going, and, uh, you know, they still have the ball and they run around, maybe run for a first down. So I think it's something that we talk about, you know, something that O'Shea always talks about is when you're going for the quarterback, try to attack his hand, 
rather than his body. So you can kind of see the ball. But it, it is a difficult thing sometimes because the quarterbacks up here, they do a good job of pumping it, buying some time for the receiver, maybe taking another step to the left and, you know, throwing the first down. So you're always hunting the quarterback. You're always trying to attack him. But, of course, you know, O'Shea does a good job with us of showing us the penalties, showing us how every week we'll watch some of the other teams' penalties and we'll talk about it as a team, talk about the situation, how can it, how we can avoid that penalty because – you know, in the CFL, there's only, a, you know, th- four games a week. So it's all about learning and learning from other people's mistakes so we don't make them ourselves. You're going to be under the microscope this week, 55, after joining us today. You know that. Oh, no, there's no microscope, man. <laughs> Get the microscope <laughs> off me, man. You know, just look at everybody. But, uh, I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, we, we try to, you know, go after the court. We try to get them on the ground because, I mean, like you say right now, with Ricky Ray playing the way that he's playing, he's revitalized that organization. He's revitalized that team. And, you know, they're looking very good, you know, with their receivers, especially their offense. I mean, they're doing a great job this year. And it's, it's our job as a defense to just hold them to one less point than our offense scores. Well, you've been a big part of the revitalization overall of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as well, Jamal. We appreciate your uh, not only you taking time with us today, but all the work you do in the community. And uh, best of luck on Thursday against the Argonauts. Hey, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. And for all the fans out there, let's make it, cr- let's make it loud. Let's make it crazy. All right. Well said. Jamal Westerman, defensive lineman, number 55 in your program. Joining us this afternoon on Mackling and McGarry. We'll take a pause. We'll update your weather forecast. More conversation as we make our way through the afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. Greg, uh, would you say old, slow, black guy? This at 204-780-6868. I describe myself as an old, slow, white guy. Which means I can relate to Ricky Ray, which means when I watch football, I still scratch my head when I see this guy doing what he does, the magic he performs on the football field. And so I asked Jabal Westerman, the member of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defensive line, how frustrating it must be to not be able to catch a guy like me as a quarterback. (laughs) And this seems to have raised the ire of one of our listeners. When I look in the mirror, I see an old, slow, white guy who doesn't look much different than Ricky Ray. So if you can't wrap your brain around that and that assimilation and that topic of conversation and trying to relate the common man to the professional athlete, well, then I've got zero help for you, listener, at 204-780-6868. Earlier today, we were talking about the use or lack of use of seatbelts in our province. We do pretty well. Yeah. Right, ninety three point four percent, ninety three point six, something like that. Yep, percent of Manitoba. Not the highest in the country, but about middle of the pack, as right. is very typical of Manitoba. Yeah, no kidding. Very well said. Uh, people calling, no one admitting that for a long time either they didn't wear a seatbelt, they still don't wear a seatbelt. Question was asked because we we like to. Well, they don't, so why shouldn't I, or why should I have to? Question was asked about school buses. Why don't school buses mm-hmm. have seatbelts? Police officers. Why don't they have to wear a seatbelt when they're in hot pursuit? Well, guess what we had? We had a call from Bob, a former school trustee and a former police officer. Here's my two-minute 26 conversation with Bob. I'm an ex-police officer, and I'm, I'm an ex-school trustee, so I, an interesting perspective. I was around when the seatbelt legislation came into play. I was one that didn't usually wear it or at least 
word on the highway didn't bother in the city or vice versa. Anyway, when I went to three days of, of lectures from the, with senior traffic analysts, the U.S. Department of Transport, and also uh, Canadian uh, Highway Safety, it made a believer in me. And 25 years of policing, the amount of accidents I've been to where people were killed because they were ejected is just sickening because you know that this little lap belt or seat belt could have saved their lives. Now, to say a seat belt is perfect, you can't. A seat belt, for it to be effective, has to be worn snug and low on the hip. That's one of the reasons it's not used on a school bus. You're realizing you've got everything from kindergartens to grade 12s. You, for a seat belt to be effective, you would have to have each child in the same seat adjusted the same way every day for it to be effective and safe. So what they've done in the reverse is instead made higher seat backs and that to afford more padded coverage and protection, considering the majority travel at low speed as well. Literally, you'd have to have the driver going up and down each seat to make sure people are, are buckled in and properly. They just can't afford that kind of time. So, uh, you know, seatbelts would be beneficial, but it's just not practical. Uh, the transit driver was a little dismaying with me because I remember when I was uh, still a young kid, Arlington and Mountain, a transit driver in an accident that was ejected out the front window of his bus. And if you know the, the geometry and, and uh, physics of an accident, you're propelled in the direction the vehicle was going. He was thrown out the front window up against the curb. His bus killed him. So, you know, I mean, it's it's dynamics. I mean, if you're in a small vehicle and you get hit by a train, is a seatbelt going to make a difference? Probably not. If you're even in a big vehicle and a, and a deer or a moose come through your front window, whether you're wearing a seatbelt or not, it's probably not going to change a difference. But if you look at the sheer number of accidents and you look at the statistics, less than one half of 1% where seatbelts really were ineffective or contributed to the accident. So there's like 99.5% where it's going to afford you some protection and safety. Uh, I liken it if you're on a plane and the pilot comes on and says, we're going to crash. There's nothing we can do about it. The pilot stewardess comes along and offers you a $25,000 parachute or a $1,000 parachute. Which one are you going to take? I know what I'm doing. I'm putting on my seatbelt, whether it seems to be out of a 1964 Valiant or not. If I'm on a plane and I'm being told that it's going to crash, regardless of my belief in whether or not that seatbelt has any chance of helping me live, I'm putting it on because it's the best chance I've got. Yeah, can't argue with that logic. Logic. You're you're good at arguing stuff with me, so if if you cannot find a reason to argue with me, I'm pretty comfortable with my point. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I mean, like I said, it's but but we've had some great insight today, though, especially from a lot of truck drivers. You know, one guy who said, "Hey, I wear my seatbelt in the vehicle all the time, and when I get into the into the dump truck, I don't do that." And he says, "I don't know why." And in spite of the fact that they've had some pretty nasty collisions, he says, "I don't exactly know why I do that." So, again, some great insight from our listeners today uh, on that topic. We will take a break. Uh, more conversation after three o'clock. We will go to British Columbia. Forest fires continue to rage there. We will get uh, an update from Estefania Duran from CKNW. Tristan Field-Jones next with Global News and Weather. Thanks once again for all your interaction today. Appreciate the text messages, the emails, the phone calls, 780-6868. We're going to give away some stuff. Not now, but a little bit later. Hold your horses. Because we like to do that, so I'm blocking the lines. Okay. Right now, so you can't get through even if you want to. Um, British Columbia uh, entering another day dealing with forest fires. It's, this is a pro- province-wide emergency situation. 
Estefania Duran from CKNW joined us yesterday. She's so kind to join us again this afternoon at this very same time to give us an update as to what's happening in BC. And Estefania, uh, the RCMP having to deal with a little bit more than just forest fires. Uh, one of the concerns about not obeying and reasons why people don't obey and a ev- mandatory evacuation order is leaving their belongings behind. And for some people, this is becoming a, a founded concern, unfortunately. It is. And that's one of the reasons why 300 BCRCMP members are being redeployed to help. And those numbers, we just heard about them a few minutes ago. And it is it is a situation that requires help. They're saying that they're doing everything they can. They will assess the situation. And if more officers or members are needed, they will send them their way. But there have been arrests for looting in the area. And as you mentioned, people evacuating is just always to keep order. So they're saying that they're sending tactical members who are specialized to deal with emergency situations as well as traffic services. So they're hoping that this will help with the situation because today it's not looking better than yesterday. We still have 225 wildfires burning across BC and about 14,000 people who have been forced out of their homes. Estefania, I have to ask, how widespread has the looting been? I think now we heard of a few cases of arrest. Is it becoming a major problem or are are they kind of tackling this before it ends up being an issue? So far, not that we know. There's been 10 arrests for looting, and it's in a specific area across 100 Mile House and Williams Lake area. But they are, it seems, to try to be on top of this before it gets any worse. So part of the job that the officers that are going to the area are going to have, as um, Butterworth Carr mentioned with BCRCMP, is going to be monitoring and going around the neighborhoods that have already been evacuated just to keep an eye and make sure that nothing is going on. Uh, you know, I, well, to me, it's such a, and this is an editorial comment, such a waste of valuable resources and, and a waste of, of people's emotional currency because when you leave, it's already a stressful enough mm-hmm. event to leave your home and your belongings behind and to uh, imagine that your fears of, of things maybe going missing and vandalized are, are becoming founded for some people is a tremendous uh, waste, not only of, as I mentioned, emotional currency, but the idea that the RCMP now to dedicate resources to this, I think, is a shame. The smoke has become an issue, uh, drifting all the way to Alberta and even Saskatchewan and Manitoba, quite bad in Edmonton. But I was speaking to my buddy in Vernon this morning. He says in the Okanagan, uh, they're having air quality warnings in that part of the province. Yes, definitely. Smoky air is now one of the concerns uh, for much of the province's interior. Uh, We also saw an advisory here in Metro Vancouver just a few days ago. And not only for people, but it's also crews battling the fire because we've been told that smoke is making it difficult for aircraft and crew members just to even gaze the sizes of the fires because of how thick it is sometimes. So it's something that not only firefighters are having to deal with, but it's now affecting people who are not even in the proximity of the fires. What's the forecast like, Estefania? Weather-wise, what are we looking at? Do we have favorable conditions for this emergency to continue, or is Mother Nature going to intervene here at some point? Unfortunately, from what we've heard, it looks like there's no rain forecasted anytime soon. So all we can do is wait and hope for the situation to improve and hope that there's no wind warnings or more lightning warnings in the area because that could definitely make things 
just very quickly deteriorate. And and on that note, Estefania, what are you hearing from fire officials as a result of that forecast? I mean, you mentioned 225 wildfires. Sounds to me like that number hasn't changed a whole lot in the next 24 hours, but or in the last 24 hours, I should say. But could are there are they bracing for another outbreak of wildfires as a result of this weather, or is it now more shifted to containment? Well, I don't think they know. The problem is that right now they're so spread out and there are so many fires that are of note, let alone the smaller fires that are across the province, that I think they're just getting ready for anything just in case the situation worsens. And just to paint a picture to your listeners, just yesterday when we were talking, the fire at Ashcroft was 4,500 hectares. Today is 6,000 hectares. Just this Friday, it was less than a thousand. So as we can see, things can very quickly change for better or for worse. So I think they're just trying to stay on top of it and not assume anything until they're safe to say so. Some good news here. Manitoba now contributing to the forest fire relief effort or the firefighting effort. We're not in anywhere close, I don't think, to the relief effort here, Estefania. Manitoba sending 13 trained firefighters and 50 water pumps to help battle the flames uh, in British Columbia. So that is expected to uh, happen later on this week. An outpouring of support from right across the country. What about in the, into the United States, uh, getting support from California, Oregon, Washington, etc.? We haven't been told of anything, but we have been told that people in the in the fire lines are very helpful to know that help is there if they need it and that other provinces are pitching in. Alberta as well as sending 40 RCMP um, officers. And just yesterday we talked about other provinces helping by sending crew members or anything that's needed. So I think this that situation might change, but for now... From what we've heard across the front lines is they're happy to just get the extra hands on deck. Estefania, outstanding reporting, outstanding work, uh, not only on air, but on our website at cknw.com. And we, of course, translate that to our cgob.com and global news websites as well. So we appreciate all the hard work. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Estefania Duran, she joined us from our affiliate in Vancouver, CKNW uh, News Radio uh, on the lower mainland. We'll take a break, our weather forecast and traffic when we return. You left your microphone open there. I just said, I, I, got, a, I got a question. Oh, okay. What's your question? I got a question for our uh, Nazareth contest. Oh. 204-780-6868. Get your dialing fingers ready. Jeffrey Forche, we have the Burley machine working. You'll recognize this. You know this riff, right? Tristan, you can talk. I, I can talk, and, and I can't. I know the riff, and I can't put. Um... Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I, I know the riff, but I, I can't put an name. What to is it. the name of this song? And you have to spell it exactly correct. Before I looked it up, I typed in one thing, and it actually came up as another. You have to be able to spell the name of this song. Okay? Mm-hmm. 204-780-6868, July 28th, if you want to go see Nazareth. You have to talk now, because I have to go tell Jeff Forte how to spell <laughs> this song. Okay? You keep okay. talking now well, for a little while. Keep talking I'll with this awesome music. Okay, so Greg yeah. McLean is going to go talk I'll to our right producer back. to tell him how to spell this.
I feel as if I should be doing play-by-play -play commentary here. We've got, uh, he's gonna head over to the control room and tell them. Um, we got a couple text messages to read here over there. I feel so strange reading some of these text messages over some awesome rock music. I just want to listen to this all day, frankly. Um, oh, here we go. And behind the glass, Greg is talking to Jeffrey. I feel as if this is a derby almost. And it looks like they're getting everything sorted out. Greg approaches the microphone. And I believe everything's sorted out. Oh, not quite. Looks like there's some confusion there. Oh, this is such a good riff. I could listen to this all day. Anyway, um, while Greg returns, we got a bunch of great feedback earlier today um, about wearing a seatbelt in your car. And fantastic perspective from our from our listeners. And, you know, we, we heard from a lot of people who were saying, oh, ladies and gentlemen, he's back. Keep going. I tried to do a play-by-play, -play and I think it worked okay. Keep going. Keep going. I was just saying we heard from a lot of people, especially a lot of truckers who say they don't wear their seatbelts. We also heard from a lot of people, though, who um, were saying the, quite the opposite, saying if you don't wear your seatbelt, you're a fool, as one of our listeners here puts it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, you know, he, it's interesting the dichotomy, if you will, that we have between our listeners, where some of them are absolutely adamant, I don't wear a seatbelt because I don't want to. It's the man right? trying to put me down. It's a revenue exactly. generation. This is something that's put in place so that the government can make money, not for my own good. And yet we had a fair number of people here who were saying, uh, you know, like one person here saying seatbelts. Wearing seatbelts in Manitoba is the law. So if you have a crash and not wearing one, it will compromise your auto insurance. Something to think about. And the extra fines. That's from JP. Uh, and it's, it's just, even if you disagree with it, why, why would you... And, and again, trucks aside, because that seems to be a bit of a separate circumstance. Mm -hmm. But if you're driving your car on the highway, why would you, you know, you get pulled over and, and putting your seatbelt on is is such an easy I thing to do. I don't care about the pulled over. Just why would you want to yeah. put yourself in, in, in that situation? Uh, I myself was rear-ended uh, by someone doing over 80 kilometers per hour. Without a seatbelt, you would be hosting the show this afternoon with Brett McGarry or somebody else. Well, Brett would still be on holidays, but it would be somebody else. Many of our listeners would be very pleased by that notion. Uh, <laughs> but I'm happy that I'm yeah. here to do the show with you, and it was a seatbelt that saved my life. You know, I could have ignored the law and said, no, the, ma the man's not going to get me down. I personally know the benefits of complying with the law. I also remember, as I mentioned, back in the day, 1978-79, when British Columbia brought the law in, and the rest of... Canada thought that BC was filled with a bunch of communist socialists who were trying to control every aspect of British Columbians' lives. Well, very quickly, the rest of the country followed suit, and I think a lot of people's lives have been, been saved by seatbelts. Yes, I know there are the odd stories of situations where yep. people could not get out of a vehicle because of a seatbelt. Those are heartbreaking. I yes. can only imagine being in that situation, but they are far from the norm and far less common than a situation where a seatbelt saves a mm -hmm. life. I th Once again, I've left you speechless. No, speechless. No, I just think that's a great point to end because we got uh, weather coming up here and then sports. And then sports. TFJ, don't complain about the miserable 19 degrees. This weather is welcoming to those without air conditioning and those of us who can't bear the high humidex. That's that's a good point, though. I must admit, I, my condo will be a little bit cooler thanks to this weather. But it's July, man. You know, I'll deal. I'll deal with it. Clay Young next with 
as Tristan mentioned, sports, sports, experience, or education, or a strong combination of both. Tristan Field Jones, oh, what is it that you think creates our opinions and our feelings on whether or not I should wear a seatbelt, whether or not it's the man who's trying to keep me down by strapping me into the seatbelt, or a variety of different decisions that we make that maybe are contrary in the gray area of quote-unquote the law. Don't try and tell me what to do. I know a little bit better. Is it experience or education? Well, I think it's mostly experience that formulates that. Uh, in an ideal perfect world, it's a combination of both. But I think when it comes to a lot of people, it's mostly experience. We had a back and forth. We've been having several discussions and back, backs and forth, back and forths, backs and forth. Backs and forths. Backs and forths. <laughs> we'll debate that off the air. Sure. Um, my strong opinion is in favor of seatbelts. Uh, I have contrary experience when I was a kid, was much against it. Um, in my 30s, a week into my 30s, seatbelt saved my life. So my experience tells me mm, they kind of work. Um, someone text message saying there are circumstances where people die because they have a seatbelt on. I will not refute that. I wanted to know how many. And the answer by the texter was one is too many. I said, well, that's the exact same response I would give to you as to why legislation should be in place for us to wear seatbelts. One preventable death is worth having legislation in place. And we know that number. I think all of us know in our heart of hearts that that genuine number is much higher than one in Manitoba every year. Deaths that are prevented. Now I got to, we have a variety of way people reach out, telephone, text, email. I got a Facebook message from one of my friends who is listening. I'm going to keep her name out of this because mm -hmm. I haven't received permission from her to use her name. So I'm just going to read this. Okay. Hi, Greg. I live right on the east side of Highway 75 at Junction 247, where the accident happened yesterday. We were actually asleep and were woken by a sound we thought was something on our deck. Moments later, we saw air ambulance and hazard uh, lights, heard sirens, and realized there must have been a bad accident again. My husband is a truck driver, and he never wears his seatbelt either. And I've always complained anytime I'm in the truck with him. I always wear mine, mine, pardon me, never understand why truck drivers don't wear seatbelts. This has hit him really hard and I think in a horrible situation has changed his views of wearing a seatbelt. Now, another one of our loyal listeners shares with us his opinion and it dovetails into something that we were talking about off air that highlights the fact that even when you do the right thing, it's not always a guarantee of success. Jack says, this was my perspective for years. What if I flipped over in a ditch and was underwater? How could I get out? I would drown. My wife, I thought for 30 years of driving, he, he, you know, he thought that for 30 years of driving. Then I met my wife seven years ago. In her infinite wisdom, she looks straight at me and says, what are the chances that you are going to flip over in your car, let alone be near enough water in a ditch deep enough for you to drown you so-and-so, such-and-such? I now wear my seatbelt. There are no guarantees in life. No. 
But I like to play the odds. Sure, sure. Especially when it comes to your own life, absolutely. Now, how are we going to tie this to tornadoes, one of your passions? What's interesting is that the seatbelt discussion reminded me of an instance where, and there are a few people who did bring this up in the sense that sometimes a seatbelt can, in fact, be part of the reason why you die in a horrific crash. And there was an instance where people followed the safety procedures during a tornado, and that's what got them killed. This is an incredibly rare circumstance. It was it was uh, it was a very unique situation, but this happened and it completely baffled researchers. There's this small town called Jarrell, Texas. This was over 20 years ago. And the the atmosphere that day happened to be particularly unstable. It was incredibly volatile. And lo and behold in uh, at about 3:45 in the afternoon, a massive tornado touched down. To give you a perspective, this is considered one of the most powerful tornadoes ever recorded around the world. It dug up dirt to a depth of 18 inches. It ripped up the plumbing from the ground. There was no, uh, there was no escaping this tornado. And what happened is this town, um, it, it, this town, the people in the town had these houses that were fairly well built. And in most tornadoes, if especially if it's a violent one, you go in your basement, you try and hide under blankets, you try and protect yourself. The people in this town did just that. And unfortunately, because this was such a violent town, because it could rip up concrete from the ground. Violent tornado. Yeah, because it was sorry, such a violent okay. tornado. These there were in an entire an entire subdivision was wiped out. There were entire family trees that were gone because they followed the safety procedures. You're, what you're not supposed to do in a tornado is get in your car and leave because you're even more vulnerable. Because the irony this, here? The irony here is that the tornado was traveling at about 15 kilometers an hour. You could have outrun it on foot. And people are saying in that incredibly rare circumstance, if those people had gotten those cars and left, they would have had a far better chance of surviving than doing the right thing and staying in their basements. And just to, as a testament to how powerful this tornado was, 27 people were killed in the subdivision. And yet, I don't have an official count on the injuries, but the number of people who were injured was maybe half a dozen. That just goes to show that if you were in the path of this tornado, you were pretty much dead. Two great text messages here before we break. Uh, this from John. There's a small pocket device that cuts the seat belt and can break the glass. I carry one. I remember buying one for my dad. I'm a dum-dum. I don't have one for myself. I should probably get one. Great point, John. Great tool. And if this doesn't sum it all up, I'll eat my hat. Hi. I was rear-ended on April 1st, 1984, first day of the mandatory seatbelt law. If that isn't karma, I don't know what is. I'm assuming you had your seatbelt on, Karen, and we know that you're here to share that story Mm -hmm. with us. She closes her text message with great show. Karen, thank you. And we're so glad that you're here to listen to it and to share with us your thoughts on this. It's, it's tragic because there are times we're following the safety procedures. It's exceptionally rare, but there are times where it backfires. And unfortunately that's something we have to live with. But the fact of these safety procedures or these safety rules or, or regulations, we're trying to save as many people as possible Knowing full well that we won't be able to save them all. No, we're not. We're just trying to take money out of their wallets, Tristan. 3.45 on this Tuesday afternoon. the traffic, weather together. And we also will receive a visit from one, the other, or both of Richard Cloutier 
and or Julie Buckingham when we return. Last text on the seatbelt situation. A friend of mine was killed because of two sets of circumstances. First, her wearing a seatbelt. Second, the driver not. She was hit and killed by his body as he was ejected from the car. Very rare situation. For years, our friends blamed her wearing a seatbelt. She would clearly have been ejected, but more blame goes to the driver as she likely would have survived the rollover if he had been buckled in. He was also impaired, which is always a killing factor. Thanks for so many perspectives yep. on this story this afternoon. Tristan? Richard Kluche and Julie Buckingham are in now, and uh, oh boy, we've had a bit of a heavy show today. Uh, do you guys have uh, a heavy show planned, or are you going to light things up a bit? Lots going on today, but a little bit later we're going to do some grazing. Yeah, grazing in the outfield. Sounds like a ton of fun. Uh, you, some of your pals, some gold eyes, so some fish, some cows in the outfield at the park. And you have this amazing catered dinner in the outfield at the baseball park. You raise money at the same time. Hear from uh, Andre Dawson. Oh, get out! The hawk? <laughs> get, the hawk. In, get in! Get in when by getting this? tickets. When is this? August 10th, we'll have uh, Andrew Collier join us. And uh, <laughs> Greg is writing down notes here. Is that a Thursday? I, 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 I don't I, have August 10th okay, right off the okay, hop. Okay, I'll but listen. Yes, I'm at 5.15. 5.15. And okay. some of this, uh, at the same time, besides having a, a wonderful dinner, you will also get a tax receipt as uh, it raises some money for their foundation as well. It's a Friday, by the way, if you're planning. August 18th is a Friday. Okay. Yeah, the this 10th is, is the a 10th. Thursday. August 10th, Rich. August 10th is a Thursday. <laughs> if you go on the 18th, you're going to miss it. <laughs> you yeah. have missed it. So doesn't that sound like fun? I'll go on the 10th, you go on the 18th. That sounds like that? fun. We'll split one I ticket. had something else planned for the 18th. Okay, fair Uh-oh. enough. Okay. What else is going on, Julie? Oh, you don't want Richard to talk? He already talked. He, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's gone past his allowance of 12 words to yeah, the segment. No, no, no. He, he can say as much as he wants, just as long as he gets his facts straight. What's up, Rich? <laughs> Not much else going on. Okay, good. Well, that that sounds like a... <laughs> we'll talk to you after the 4 o'clock news. Wow. A wow. It's an uh, Martha Barwinski will be with us. We're going to talk Dutch elm disease and what the city, again, is trying to do to prevent it. And, of course, uh, all of the changes it's coming like from the WRHA. Cluche uh, on Cluche. Uh, Riel Cluche will join us in our 680 CGOB studios following Ooh. the 4 o'clock news. Um, no I problem have with that last name. I have obtained uh, some of the cost breakdowns here on savings. You know, they talk about $83 million. Well, I've got uh, a more detailed uh, itemization here of uh, what's actually being purported to save. We've got lots of questions. This is with regards to the quick care clinics? The quick care clinics and what they, in April, they announced um, the Healing Our Health System plan that is purported to save $21 million with non-clinical expenditure reductions of further $27 million and the clinical expenditure reductions they've announced today a further $35 million. One of the examples, and I, I will say that there was this build mentality and uh, leasing a lot of space. And if you're familiar with, I guess it's a, they serve very good gelato on Corden <laughs> Avenue, but it is a building that was built privately and leased out to the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority mm-hmm. on Corden Avenue. And uh, they are going to vacate that space. And so they're moving some of their space from leased properties and they're consolidating. Not a bad idea 
in in the sense that uh, really back in uh, the 2000s with the previous government, this was a bureaucracy that really expanded. So they're reducing their footprint as far as lease space is concerned. So they are finding some some savings that make sense, but the unions are up in arms again this afternoon because they do believe that it's going to cost people jobs and ultimately jobs uh, equate to uh, a reduction in service. I don't understand how they have all these statistics about how much money is being saved and how many people weren't using this and weren't using that, yet they have no idea and they cannot tell us how many people are being sent from Misericordia Urgent Care to other facilities. And I hope people will text us this afternoon. If you've ever used one of these quick care clinics, I'll have uh, my experience times two with a quick care clinic. And so we'd like to hear yours at 780-6868. Did you ever try and use one? Richard Cloutier, Julie Buckingham, the news from four until seven, right here on 680 CGB. That's our time. Jeff Forche, Master Control, thanks for keeping us on time, mostly. Uh, I'm Greg Mackling. He is Tristan Field-Jones. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.